Today, I'm talking to social justice facilitator, writer, and pleasure activist, Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian and I connected over how deeply pleasure is connected to our liberation, and she's dedicated her life to the freedom that it brings, while prioritizing black liberation movements, challenging the government and its war profiteering head-on, and writing like a mofo. Adrian took some time out of her busy schedule, and I mean busy, she is writing two books at the same time, and post-hawk watching mission, to chat with me about community, pleasure, the struggle, and the joy of being a powerful, outspoken, honest female with a lot to do in this life. Hey, this is Michelle Kanan. If you've been enjoying these inspiring conversations with legendary women that are really living life on their own terms, then I invite you to a new group mastermind experience that I'm launching this month called Do You. Do You is a group where I'm connecting powerful women that are looking to learn how to prioritize themselves and live a life that lights them up. What do I do? Well, I help powerful women rekindle their inner fire, making their desires the priority to live a passionate, healthy, and radically happy life from the inside out. If this sounds like it's for you, if you have a dream that you're looking to put into action, or if you're just really looking to reconnect with yourself and your inner wisdom and intuition, then be in touch with me and we can see if the Do You group is right for you. You can shoot me an email, hellyes at radicallyselfish.com, or you can find me on Instagram at radicallyselfish. Let's talk because spots are filling up fast and I want you to do you as much as you do. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining me today. I'm talking to Adrian Marie Brown, who is a social justice facilitator, a writer, a healer, and a doula. I'm very excited because I've been following you online and I've been reading your beautiful words and seeing all the incredible stuff that you've been doing. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Yeah. Um, but maybe you can tell us or me in your own words who you are, not just what's on the internet about you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, you know, I live in Detroit. So as we're having this conversation, I just spent the entire morning watching, I think, a red-tailed hawk or... I'm trying to figure out exactly what kind of hawk, but I basically was watching a hawk tear a bird apart outside my window, and wow. it was pretty exciting. <laughs> like it was, I was like, "Whoa, that is like not." I think someone else said it might be a copper's hawk, but anyway, it's not. You know, I live in a city, and so you don't see that all the time. That kind of like raw, natural, predatorial behavior. And that kind of stuff geeks me all the way out. And I would just like, you know, rearrange my whole morning to watch that. It's more than <laughs> watching a pigeon rip apart a slice of pizza in New York. It is. <laughs> it is. It's like, oh, no, that's natural. Like, that's normal. You know, then I was like deep diving, like, what can you learn about hawks? And it's like hawks are spirit messengers and a lot of times bring wisdom from ancestors. And so I was told to like run out and grab the feathers that were picked off of the eaten bird. And, you know, it's just like those things where you're like, oh, this is not on my radar or my schedule. But I do live my life this way where I there's a little bit of following what's most interesting or causes most curiosity in a day. Mm -hmm. And then I'm well, writing that you yeah. call yourself a practical witch, right? I do. I feel very much like. You know, I'm not like, let's just be in ritual for hours, but I'm just very much like, you know, ritual is important. So how do we strike a balance in the modern world, in our modern lives, where we're still 
accessing magic, open to magic, available to, you know, wisdom that comes. And, you know, magic can be a lot of things. I think there's the magic that is like illusion, you know, like constructed tricks that give the illusion of something impossible happening. And that's one kind of magic. And then I'm really into a different kind, which is like things that seem impossible based on what we can add up from the material and tangible world still being possible (laughs) because we draw on other forces and other energies. Mm. So that's something about me. And then I think the other big thing that's happening in my life right now is I'm working on a book called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. And this month is my like finalizing the manuscript month. So I'm very like, thank you. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I'm a very interested in pleasure and B, especially I know with so much going on in the world and so much struggle and like all the fighting that we have to do to stand for ourselves, like how does pleasure fit into all that? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. Right. I feel like the reason I've been working on the book, I read this essay and heard this essay by Audre Lorde called The Uses of the Erotic as Power. And it talks about this idea that once you have been fully erotically awakened, that you can't go back and settle for suffering. And I got so like moved by that idea that I'm like, yes, yeah, so much of what happens, so much injustice, so much imbalance, so much oppression is because we have been socialized to take it, socialized to think that we don't deserve pleasure and socialized to think that we should not pursue it. So part of the methodology of the book is like, how do we make justice the most pleasurable experience that humans can have and liberation, the most pleasurable experience we people can have. So it's not like, Oh, I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm miserable and I hate this, but it's like, well, what do we need to do to make the meeting like a total joy of being in good presence with each other? And what do we need to do to make our lives more of an orgasmic? Yes. Rather than a drudgery or a sense of obligation. So those are some of the things. And like the book is a hybrid of me writing things. I've been like writing a pleasure dome column for bitch magazine. And so I've gathered stuff there and like other stuff I've been writing. And then it's weaving that with these essays and interviews that I've been doing with people who are doing groundbreaking work around sex work and humor and burlesque and running sex shops and like all these different things, which are like, okay, How do we make it explicit that humans pursue pleasure? How do we learn what feels good? Like, how do we get in that practice so that we can then apply that to our work for justice and liberation? Yeah, and also, like, to prioritize it, too, because I know a lot of the messages that I got from my family and from society is that it's not a priority, you it's, know, and that yeah. there's a lot of backlash, especially even from the women in my family, yeah. that I wanted to pursue happiness or prioritize yeah. that kind of feeling good. That would be the guide for myself in my life and how that, like I was so judged for that actually. Well, and I think it's like one of these intergenerational wisdom things, right? That there's always been people who have pursued pleasure And there's a way in which it's either been the pursuit of those who had more resources or the pursuit of those who were, you know, not focused on like the well-being of the community or the well-being of their families or something. You know, it was like, oh, you fell off, you're going off in this direction. And or some of the things that are pleasurable have been co-opted by capitalism into you know, things that just serve the male gaze or just serve patriarchy or just serve someone else. So I think we're in a newish period of life where there's so many more people who are like, wait a second, like 
My body is actually wired to feel good. A lot of the busy work and sort of tasks of humanity are being taken on by different technologies. And so it's like, well, then I could spend more time on understanding my pleasure and understanding what it means if life is not met. You know, it's like suffering is a part of what it means to be alive, but I don't think it's the purpose, right? And I feel like that distinction, like I deeply believe that we don't get to avoid suffering or loss or grief or any of those things that they ripen our lives. But I think the purpose is to constantly be choosing like, oh, like I'm alive on purpose. What a joy, what a pleasure that is. And I get to be here with others. Oh, how do I learn to be on this planet with others in ways that feel really good and powerful and nourishing and real, you know? Would you say that like claiming pleasure is also in that way an act of rebellion? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And, you know, I think that like those who've said that, you know, like it's an extension of, right? Audre Lorde talks about like caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It's an act of political warfare. Mm -hmm. And I think for those of us who have been told our bodies don't matter, our lives don't matter, our happiness doesn't matter, like we're not whole people, like all these messages that have been placed on us, you know, like I'm a black woman, like since my ancestors came to this country, this land, the pervasive messaging has been no, <laughs> no to your livelihood, no to your well-being. You're here just to be in this service role. And to break out of that is a radical act. Like it feels radical in the sense of, you know, you can't just do a little bit and be like, oh yeah, you know, it's like you have to kind of make a commitment to be like, I'm going to go down into my root system because nothing in my body is wired or nothing in my body understands or believes that it's allowed to have access to pleasure, right? I've had to be like, oh, wait a second. Like even, you know, coming down to like the act of sex, right? So many of us, particularly women, particularly cis women are introduced to sex as something that we are doing to please a man, right? And it takes a long time. Like I do sex writing, thinking, coaching, sharing with people. And it's so fascinating to me how many people like it takes a decade or more before they start to have an awakening on like, oh, this could actually be about my pleasure, <laughs> you know, and I have to be an active participant in order for that to be the case. And I'm like, that's the truth with anything else that we're doing in our lives. It's like, oh, you know. I'm not supposed to be in a job just to serve someone else's vision for what's happening in the world. I could also serve my vision and something that serves my communities. Wow. It's a radical thing. And the kind of joy that you feel inside of work that is directly feeding back into your community, you know, versus something where you're like, Oh, this money's all going to some technocrat somewhere, <laughs> you know, elsewhere. It's a measurable difference in how your life feels and the purpose of your life feels. I like a sneeze. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah. like how you brought it back in that way because a lot of times when people talk about or think about joy or pleasure, it gets connected to this idea of selfishness and taking away from others somehow. And so one of the things that you just mentioned was about the joy of giving or the joy of mm -hmm. being part of something greater that you believe in. And people can forget that somehow like they can work in anything and it's just like how do you add the joy or the pleasure to it and, and what other level of like creativity and freedom and possibility does it bring when you add that to your work yeah and like i think there's something interesting about the concept of selfishness and the relationship between selfishness and privilege right because i feel like there's you know if you have an immense amount of privilege 
then there's a lot of things that I think you can see as selfish behaviors because you have lots of privilege and you're choosing to keep it to yourself. I think for a lot of the people that I work with and for, and even the way my own life is structured, privilege is not the default condition. And Mm -hmm. so then those things that we do that are like, I'm taking care of my body, I'm taking care of my mental health, I'm taking care of my community, I'm taking care of you know, making sure we're all eating good, organic, wholesome food or, you know, like these different things. I think that they can be seen as selfish only if you're like not taking into account the lack of privilege that is the baseline in a lot of the scenarios. I think once you start to accommodate, like, oh, I look at like my grandmother, she was a maid. She was cleaning houses, cleaning hotel rooms for her life. I'm like, she had seven children. I don't even know if she got a moment to herself for her adult life, much less moments to be selfish. But I could imagine someone like her feeling selfish if she was to take time to just be like, I'm just going to take a bath right now or right do these things. And so there's sometimes when I will be doing something like taking a bath and feeling the ancestral work of that, of just being like, I want to offer this one back to my grandmother who didn't get that time, but who paved the way for me to have that kind of time right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's such Um, an excellent point that you bring up, how you can make it such an intentional act or a ritual, or you can honor the people or the lineage that came before you that didn't have those opportunities and that couldn't have that kind of freedom, knowing that, like, even if they didn't know it, everything that they did was leading to this moment where you could have that privilege or enjoy what you have. Exactly. And, like, I think that... It feels radical to me when I am able to enjoy my life or when I'm able to, you know, I think about this, like getting paid what I'm actually worth. I think there's like a privilege and pleasure that comes from me in the amount of freedom I have over how I spend my time. So this is one of the things I'm like, oh, initially I thought it was really selfish to say, I want to just spend my time how I want to spend it. I was like, you can't do that. No one's allowed to do that. Or you can only do that if you're extremely wealthy. And I've never been extremely wealthy. And I have been like, oh, for me, at least I have found that it happens only when I'm in right relationship with a lot of other human beings. So it means I have to get in right relationship with the kind of people who want to hire me about, you know, here's where I thrive in a working condition. Here's the gift that I have to offer into movement. And here's what I need for that. And, you know, it took me a long time to start to ask for like, you know, I kept being told like I was under bidding or undercharging people for my work. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. And people get like, no, like literally like all the other people in your field are charging like twice that or three times that. And, you know, and I've kind of trusted that the resources would come in response to really good work and work that the community felt was necessary. And so that's been a constant, like kind of an ongoing growth edge for me has been that I measure my work, not by what's in my bank account, but by how many people in movement space feel like, we really need what you're offering and they're giving me good feedback and they're bringing me back to continue working with them. I really pay attention to that. And inside that, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of encouragement there. People be like, you need to rest now, you know, or I see you working hard and I want to make sure that you take some time off. Like last week, I think it was last week, I did five days of back-to-back intensive facilitation and, you know, where it was like, a group of, I think the first room was like 80 to 90 people. And that was like for two days. And then the next day went immediately into another room where I was holding about 120 people. And, you know, I'm like, in order to hold those spaces, you have to really get yourself out of the way 
like really get yourself out of the way. It's kind of the opposite of selfishness. Like you just have to be like, I'm not here or I'm just going to be here to make things as easy as possible. But like, I'm not going to be trying to drive you somewhere or push you towards something. I'm really going to try to open myself to where you need to go. And at the end of doing that kind of work, I have to kind of restore myself, right? Like I have to be like, okay, how do I make sure I understand what my edges are again? And that I do have opinions about things and I get to have those and, you know, journaling and writing, taking baths, actually like putting oil or lotion all over myself, like little things that are like, right, I have a corporal like body system and attending to it. And it's not that I put it aside during the facilitation, but there really is a way I think the best facilitation comes when you're able to release some aspect of yourself that's like, I'm going to say how this needs to go, Mm. which is, you know, just not how most of us get socialized or politicized. We're like, have an opinion, get in there, hold it, move it. And it's like, for me, my opinion is that the leadership of people of color needs to be followed. And my job is to make it easy for them to lead together and to lead others. So I'm like, okay, that's my meta opinion. And then inside the work, I'm like, I'm mostly just attending to like, are you an authentic relationship or not? And then afterwards I rest and it's like taking me a while, but now I'm like, it doesn't feel selfish. I rest, I restore and I get back to work. Or that, you know, you just remove the stigma of quote unquote selfishness. Yeah. Like, you know, clearly that's the name of this podcast. The name of <laughs> yeah. Platform. Yeah. And I had to, it was a word that I was called, like it was something that I came up against in my experience. And yeah. I wanted to take that back. You know, yeah. What you're talking about, your experience is balance. You know, yes, that you're exactly. Leader, that you're giving and then you need to nourish yourself. Like, and, yeah. and that's just all that is. I think there's that. And I also think there's something around like asserting my creative will that also feels like a space where I have learned to be unapologetically selfish and to feel really proud of the work I do there. And I have a circle of writer friends who have like, we've touched in on this and like given each other permission to set up a writing space that is just for us and to go on trips where we just get to write. And I think it's an extension of that concept of a room of one's own, but it's like a practice of one's own, a space of one's own. And that again, like in a context where there's so many different intersecting identities I hold that, you know, there's other people who see themselves as superior to me just by default, you know, like I laugh about this, but I'm like, you were born out of a white vagina and you think that makes you superior. I was also born out of white vagina. I was like, I'm multiracial. <laughs> You're just making assumptions, right? And I kind of laugh about that, but I'm just like, you know, the idea of superiority is always such a ludicrous thing to me that any of us think we are actually superior to any others. And inside of that, I'm like, and I do have something really unique and special to bring. Everyone does, right? And like my unique special thing is a writing thing. And in order to do that, I have to close the door sometimes on everything else that's happening so that I can access this deeper creative space, this quiet that's underneath the busy world where, you know, stuff is fomenting and being, you know, generated and processed through. And I'm like, if I can create quiet, then I tap into something that feels new, right? It feels new. It feels like, oh, this is a new way of understanding. This is a new 
way of writing a character. This is something new to me. It feels new. And it feels like that to me as I'm like, now I'm so excited to be alive. And those are the times when I bring my work back out to people and I get the most positive response. So people are like, I needed this. This is really helpful. Thanks for doing that work. And that's my favorite kind of writing is writing where it's like, I'm not just being like, oh, something just happened and I'm reacting to it. But rather like I went really deep down and I thought about this really deeply and I felt really deeply. And like, you kind of have to be selfish to make room to do that in this world. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering because what it sounds like is that you've gotten to a place where you realize like a, a deep purpose in your life and B, how to access your flow as a means to an end for that purpose. And yeah. so you have like such a solid reason for doing your self care, like taking your space and yeah. like, you know, shutting the door. But for a lot of women who either haven't gotten to that place of purpose in their life or yeah. they haven't even gotten to a point where they know that they value, that yeah. they are valued in that kind yeah. of way, or they don't feel that kind of self-value. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of what I work on with women is how to teach them to be connected with their self-worth, like how they can give themselves permission to create those kinds of spaces where yeah. they can tap in in that kind of way. And yeah. even with myself, admittedly, due to my conditioning, sometimes I forget and I don't do my daily practice. I don't shut the door. I say yes to a phone call when I shouldn't. Like I say yes when I really want to say no. How do you stay on it? Like how do you make sure that you're creating that space for yourself? Well, you know, I think for me, there was a period of my life where I was giving it all away and I got a good taste of what that was like. And I reached a place of deep melancholy, kind of a feeling of, there's just like restlessness that can get into my system where it's like, what is the point of all this? Like, Mm -hmm. I want something more. I want something better. And it's in my depression. It's in my like sadness. It's in my grief, but it, I can just get there. And that's what waits for me on the other side of giving it all away. And there's isolation also. Like when I get to that place, I just feel so alone. Like nothing can touch into this place in me. It's just solitary and lonely. And being a human being is so lonely. You know, like it can really get hard. And what I've noticed is that taking the space and time to find out what it is I really care about, really deeply care about, like on this planet, what is it I long for, love, really want to pull off in my lifetime, finding other people who really also care about that so that my relationships with others are rooted in folks who care about black liberation, folks who care about radical freedom and understanding what it feels like to be in those practices, folks who care about generating more pleasure and more liberation for human beings. Like if my relationships are rooted and connecting from that longing I feel instantly much less lonely because I'm like, okay, there's a lot of us lonely creatures out here trying to do this move. And so then my yeses and my nos are rooted also from that place of like, it's not personal. I'm not saying no because I don't like your idea or your plan. It's just not part of my path. And Mm -hmm. I've gotten really clear on like my path, right? And also my path is not a forever path. Like I'm not like, it's always going to be this way. I've had to just say, I'm going to give myself fully. So the first project I felt like I did that with was Octavia's Brood, which was a science fiction anthology from movement thinkers and writers that I did with um, Walida Imarisha. And I was like, I'm giving myself fully to this. I believe in visionary fiction. I believe that all organizing is science fiction. I believe we have to unlock our radical imagination power. 
So I gave myself fully. That was my path. And the path was nourishing. It opened up the next path, emergent strategy, which was like, oh, there's something about learning from the natural world, how we can be better humans with each other and with the planet. Okay, this is important. Gave myself fully to that path, still on it. And inside of that, the pleasure activism stuff opens up, right? So there's also something about being like, oh, I can get really clear on like, what is the piece of path that I'm on right now? And then it becomes a little bit easier to say, oh, this person walks with me. This person doesn't. This project nourishes and brings that forward or it doesn't. And very occasionally I'll find myself still in a position that feels compromised. I'm like, I'm not supposed to be doing this. And I can tell. And it's not like I won't do a good job, but it's just like this isn't actually on my path. And I can tell. And now there's a kind of resistance that comes up inside me, which I'm trying to be in right relationship with. I'm like, oh, but, you know, I'll be like, oh, this isn't my path. This isn't my path. I'm wasting my time. And I have to really like also pull back from that ledge that I'm like, I spend 95 percent of my life on path. It's okay if, you know, there's occasional dalliances and that path is a joyful path. You know, like I stop and smell the roses, but I'm on path. So, so I was, I was yeah. going to ask, is it that, you know, you're not on path, it's not pleasurable anymore? Is it that literal? Or? It, that's a big, big part of it that I'm, you know, like I can tell. So like, I'll look at my calendar for the day and my calendar for the day, for the most part now is like, I'm like, Ooh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And then I'll do, oh, and then I'm doing this. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, cool. And I like these people. And so then in the course of that, like I can tell, like I'll look at the day and there'll be something I'm like, uh, mm. you know, just like a little, it's not generally like a God, why do I have to do that? I'm pretty far from making those kind of commitments, but there mm-hmm. still will be things where I'm like, uh, this is, you know, it's a little meh, right? It's like, it's not talking about pleasure. It's not talking about black liberation. It's not talking explicitly about those things. And so it's nice now to be like far enough along that I can be like, oh, let me get the nuance. Like what's the nuanced response that I'm having to this. And, but it's a lot of the work I do when I support other people in planning sabbaticals or planning out like major transformations for their lives. A lot of it is, is just like, are you in touch with no and yes in an authentic way in your body? Or are you on a regular basis overriding your no? Like, are you pushing it down, repressing your no, just being like, I'll just get through it. Or that narrative of like, I just have to do it. I have to, right? Robert Gass is like a leadership development guru trainer and works in partnership with this group called the Social Transformation Project. And they do this whole exercise of have to versus choose to. And they make Mm -hmm. you kind of write it all out. Like, what are all the things you think you have to do? What are all the things you think you're choosing to do? And as you go through doing the exercise, you start to realize that so many things you think you have to do are actually still choices. And now they might be choices with big consequences. Like right now, I'm in this battle with the IRS. Like I was a war tax resistor for a long time, which meant I didn't pay my taxes because... There's no way to divest from military expenditures. And I'm in such deep disagreement with everything our government has done in that arena for my entire adult life. So now I'm in this battle with them where it's like, I have to pay them. And even in that moment, slowing it down and being like, okay, I'm choosing to pay them. I'm still in my agency here, knowing that on the other side of that choice is jail, right? It's like, I could just be imprisoned for this. And that would be the other choice is like, I won't pay you. I'll serve this time and I'll stay in my full integrity in doing that. And it's just been a real internal struggle to be like, 
mm, I'm not going to make that choice right now. I'm going to make this other choice. And how do I stay in integrity even though I'm making this other choice? And I guess part of that is to you know, that's one situation and you're making a choice, but then it's part of other whole series of other choices because you have a family and you have people that you work with in a community. So yeah. one of the things that you're choosing for when exactly. you're making that choice. Too, exactly. Right? Like when I first started doing more tax resistance, I was in a different place, different time, different connections. And I did feel willing, you know, I was like, if they come catch up with me, I will serve this time. It will be a political imprisonment to me and I will serve it. And right now, I'm just like, oh, I'm in a very different place in my life, in my reach, in the work that I'm doing. There are two handfuls worth of children right now <laughs> across the country to whom I'm an auntie in some way. So there's, you know, and it doesn't mean that that still may not be part of my path, right? But in this moment, I'm like, oh, if I can choose a different path, I will choose a different path. And for me, being able to say, I have to take responsibility for what I'm going to choose to do as opposed to I'm a victim of life and I just have to do this thing changes how I go through my, I'm like, it's still devastating. I don't want to give this money to this government at all. And I'm in my agency. I'm in my dignity. I'm in my power. You know, I'm going to do the move I need to do in order to keep doing my work. Right. And I tell people that a lot of times it's like, not everything will be a full pleasure, but if you're in your agency and you're in your dignity, then you are kind of creating a contract with the universe, right? Like, ah, this is what I'm choosing to do with the miracle of life that you have given me. And, you know, yeah. you want that to be a gratitude, a gratitude response rather than a, ha, you gave me this miraculous life. It's horrible shit. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, it's not. Like, you know, what are you paying attention to? What are you going to focus on? How are you going to grow the good? So would you say that that's like a paradigm shift or it's like a decision to look at things differently? Because there's so many people out there that feel stuck, you know, that yeah. look at their circumstances or the cards life has dealt. Exactly. Or, you know, they talk about what's happening to them, you know, yeah. and how they can exist within that. And I also believe in this way about like personal responsibility and that you do have that kind of agency and freedom to do yeah. what you need to do. Even, and it's not that you're ignoring the outside circumstances, yeah. but you can play with them or deal with them. And however you choose to do, you always have that kind of choice. Yeah. I mean, I talk about it as like, there's systemic circumstances and systemic oppression, systemic injustice. That's all there. And part of what we're choosing to do is to fight that or to submit to it all the time or to participate in it. Right. So I think there's like the larger systemic pieces and then I think inside of it, there's, oh, what is the agency we have within the circumstances we've been given to move towards liberation mm -hmm. and to move towards sense of generating more love as part of the species, generating more dignity and power for everyone. I think this is where a lot of times the, the selfish versus self-care versus other things like gets all twisted because I think that... It's almost like we deny that people who are experiencing intersectional oppression are going to have a harder time getting to the care that they need. And mm -hmm. I think of it a, a lot in the framework of community care, that I take care of myself so that I can take care of my community. Like, I don't take care of myself just so that I have another great day of my life. It is a wonderful thing that as I take more care of myself, I have a better and better quality of life. 
but from that better and better quality of life, I am responsible to everyone else, who, especially those who are impacted by the same systems that I'm impacted by or participating in. So I think there's something about that, that sense of like, I am of a community inside of which we are caring for each other and lifting each other up. And I do believe that oxygen mask thing, you know, where it's like, I can't really take good care of other people if I am undernourished, like not oxygenated, not hydrated, not well rested. Like I can do a brief, you know, explosion of care, but I can't be part of a sustained community of systemic care that actually combats the sustained impact and pressure of systemic oppression. And I think that we have to be thinking about it on that level as like, we're actually creating a counter system and that counter system is relationship-based, adaptation-based, care and love-based, vision-based. And we're moving against something that's really trying to destroy everything we have. So, you know, it's like the circumstances are real, the conditions are dire, and inside of that, you still need to get your sleep, (laughs) you know, if you want (laughs) to actually be able to face it. My 20s were very much like breakneck, just moving at the speed of light, everything was important. Everything was the most historic meeting that ever happened. Like, and I reached the end of it, like crispy toast, you know? (laughs) So it's also like, oh, I do actually want to be a movement elder if that's available to me. That's what my life path is supposed to hold. I do want to get to be, you know, gray haired with the nibblings in my life that I love. Like there's, you know, there's things in my life now that I'm like, oh, I want to be able to do this for a while. I want to be around. And which means how do I give my gift in a way that doesn't pour the whole cup out? But like, it's like, oh, you know, like I'm watering this. I'm watering that. I'm watering this. I'm watering that. Rain is coming. Now I'm watering some more. And there's a cycle of life and I want to be a part of it. That's so beautiful because what you're talking about on such a macro and micro level, like not once did you talk about money and that kind of compensation yeah you know you're talking about which money is just an energy you know but we're just so obsessed with it is that like that's the only reward or that's the only mm-hmm. way that we can feel safe or mm-hmm. cared for and you just brought up all the other ways mm-hmm. that you receive back that you're oh, taking yeah. care of and that you're supported i mean it's been such a fascinating thing in the irs fight Like they have really come for my finances right so i you know and i tend to live a pretty like like I've got my salary, you know, I figured out a way to get a salary for my consulting work and that has worked really well. And I'm like, Oh, I'm living my life. Things are pretty steady. I'm not in financial crisis. I'm not, you know, here being Mariah Carey or, you know, like I'm just fine. And so it's been a really humbling experience to suddenly be like, Oh wait, like I don't have access to all my finances. The IRS has decided they have access to all my finances And in that humbling experience, that interdependent stuff gets turned way up. It's like, oh, I need to lean on people now. And, you know, I think there's this beautiful dance that's like how to not be transactional when you need to lean on people or they need to lean on you. But to really think of, you know, the distinction between transactional exchange and interdependent exchange, where it's like, I lean on you knowing that you lean on me as well. And if I need something from you, I've given so much and I will give so much. And it allows for generosity to exist between us. And it allows for us to remember, you know, like that we live in a made up world. So, so much of the time we're like, 
Money feels so tangible. Like when you don't have money, when you can't get it, it becomes the most tangible thing in the world. And it's like, oh, you know, if you have money and you're telling me it's not that tangible, I'm like, fuck you. You know, like it's really tangible. You can really not get your home. And, you know, it starts to become a domino effect. If you don't have access to money, it's like you don't get to have access to a quality of life. So it's very powerful. And it is a construct. You know, it's like something that someone decided we'll print this. We will infuse it with money property and make it valuable. And we will decide this piece of paper is worth $1 and this is worth 20. And we will decide that it's tied to gold and that's what's valuable. And we will decide to change the faces on it or not, you know, and it's like, oh, someone's just imagining this and kind of implementing the system. And in the same way, race, you know, is this construct, right? That it's like, it has all these very, very, very deeply real impacts and shapes the cultures that we get to live in and experience. But you know, you poke it a couple of times and it's like, there's no biology there. Like there's not right. So it's like holding that dual truth, that contradiction, like race is a construct that has very real impact. Money is a construct that has very real impact. Right. Then I feel like that fluidity in between is where you can find some space to shift those systems. Yeah, it's so important because we can get so caught up when we're like head down, like in our yeah. shit. Like you just forget that it's just a game. <laughs> you know, just like yeah, the game. We just all agreed to the rules of this game, right? Well, and we didn't even, right? I mean, like that's one of the things. Like that's the place where I do my most work. Is I'm like I didn't agree to capitalism. I would have never agreed to it, right? Black people didn't agree to be slaves and come here and like serve this country and figure it out. Like there's a lot of rules that we don't even agree to. But then they just become embedded in the soil until people are like, oh, we can't change that. And this is why I love Ursula Le Guin was a sci-fi writer. She just passed away earlier this year. And I'm obsessed with her. And But she talked about this, like, there was a time when, you know, the age of kings, like when monarchy felt like this will last forever and you can't change it. It's the monarchy. And she's like, that's the way we feel about capitalism now, that like this current economic system is the way that it is and it could never change. We'll never be free of it. But this is just a phase. This is also just a phase. And I love approaching it that way, that it's like, it's worthwhile to experiment with cooperative systems and collaborative systems and like small economic experiences that liberate us from this current condition. And I guess just mm-hmm. to take it back, those would be more pleasurable ways of living. Like living oh, in yeah. communities, supporting each other, like yes. being intentional with how you spend your money and yeah. knowing who you're giving it to, right? I mean, this is my dream. This is part of why I do, you know, like in my war tax resistance, I didn't just save all that money for myself. I gave that money out to groups that I really wanted to support, you know, so I had a sense especially with my consulting years, you know, the thing they tell you when you're a consultant is basically to set aside a third of everything you earn that you're going to give back to the government in fees. And so I just would take that money and redistribute it to projects and people and artists and other things that I thought were shaping a culture I could get behind. I felt immense pleasure being able to redistribute resources in that way. And it felt like a direct redistribution. It felt very exciting to me. But, you know, that's not the full world that we live in. But I do have these dreams sometimes of, like, what would it look like to commit for a year or two years or five years that we will redistribute all of our funds from an administration that we don't agree with 
into projects that we deeply agree with. What would that actually take to organize? What would that look like? And that's a mistake. I feel like I learned so much from mistakes. I feel like the big mistake that I made in the way I approached my war tax resistance was that I did it so alone. Like I was in my own personal resistance to the government and very frustrated with the way the circumstances, you know, I started doing it during the wars on Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was just like, I'm not supporting this. But instead of like calling up, you know, war tax resistors and experienced people <laughs> and saying like, what's the best way to do this in community? I went off and just did it my own way. And so now I think when I think about the price I'm paying, it's like, it's mostly for going in that solitary route and I'm willing to pay the price and learn that yeah. lesson. And almost everything else I do now is very much accountable to community in some way. Which feels good, right? It feels so good. It feels good and it feels safer, right? Like I am um, part of a somatics teaching community, which is like studying the body and its wholeness and really understanding where does trauma live in the body and how do we heal from it? But one of the things we talk about is that every human is really concerned with safety, belonging, and dignity. And that when we're in those three things, when they're fully realized, then it's kind of like our system can relax into like the miracle and the pleasure of being alive. But if we feel unsafe or we don't feel like we belong or we feel like someone is disrespecting us or taking our dignity, it becomes nearly impossible to actually turn and face and enjoy our lives. And so I think about that, that I'm like, oh, even though I've got this, you know, financial crisis going on, I feel safe. You know, my community has got my back. I feel deep belonging. You know, my family, friends, everyone is just like, we've got you. You know, we're here. We're taking care of you. And I really feel in my dignity, even as I'm interacting with the tax company and the banks and all these different people where I'm like, how can this happen? They're just like, you know, I'm just like, here's what I believe in. Here's why I did this. I'm not ashamed of it. And now, you know, we'll take the next steps, but I still feel like I'm in my dignity. So, you know, well, there's a well, pleasure I in that. honor you for that because it's just such an example of an outside circumstance mm-hmm. and how you're able to stay in your center with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, center also means sometimes I'm crying after those phone calls. Right? I'm just like, I can't believe you're taking all of my money. And, <laughs> you know, I'm like, and my worth is not tied up in that. My worth is not yeah. tied up there my worth is tied up in all these places that I have made critical connections in my life that are now, you know, nourishing me. And that feels so good. You know, it feels really good to be loved and cared for. And you did that, you know, that's again, back to the personal responsibility. And I'm Mm. highlighting that because you're talking about like a really difficult situation to be in, you know, a scary situation to be in, like an institution, you know, like someone suddenly coming in like an invisible hand and controlling something that you believed was yours and that you had that proprietorship over. So, yeah. And you know, the thing that's so interesting to me is like the choices I made that are helping me now were not about this situation at all. And I think that's always something important to keep in mind is like, I made a choice about maybe a decade ago now that I was like, I'm not being a very good sister, daughter, family member. Like I'm so caught up in my work. I'm not really showing up with my family and I can tell they're giving me feedback that I'm like not really present. And I made a decision to really be much more present in whatever ways. So like putting down my phone when I was visiting people, showing up more often for the visits, like being in deeper, more authentic relationships. Like what's really happening with you? My sisters and I implemented a sister check-in process where we like really go deep on like what's happening in our lives right now. And I did that work. And then I have a couple of friends who I selected 
and they selected me like we kind of moved in like let's do this co-evolution through friendship like let's work on excellence together let's be a thousand percent honest with each other about what's happening so as this crisis kind of started to unfold I'm like, oh, choices I made a decade ago to deepen into relationships, to really let people see me and to really see them. That's what's nourishing me now, right? Is like, I have people who I practice being honest with. So when this all started going down, I was like, hey, guess what's happening? And, you know, not with a bunch of like, I need to hide this from people who love me, but rather the opposite of like, you know, this is what it means to like love and be loved by people as you let them see this stuff and help you. I am so grateful because they're all helping. You know, it's like everyone in my life is much more practical than I am. <laughs> so like everyone in my life is like, girl, you just do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. I think there's something really important about you lay the foundations to have good relationships in your life. You never know when you're going to need them or when they're going to need you. You lay the relationship fra- framework because it actually makes for a much more nourishing and pleasurable life. And it allows you to take the time you need for your miracle to get attended to Right. And so like in this moment is this last fall, you know, my mom's best friend passed away and, you know, the energy, the flow of love and support was moving in a different way. Now it's kind of moving in both directions as I stay in touch with her grief and she stays in touch with my financial crisis, you know, like, so I just think it's like one of the things where like, it's all like water, right? The intero vessels or the cups is like where water moves and it's where you understand like relationship the flow of life and love and care and energy and the idea that it's like a river that's like can move in any direction as it needs to but you have to open up the channels so you don't have any like stagnant pools sitting around you're just like i want everything to be flowing (laughs) so that's how i think of like relationships by to myself and others it's like how can i open the channel so a final question for you okay. then is how do you keep that flow? Like how do you not let those stagnant pools form? For me, one of the things is getting really curious. So like whereas I used to get very like hopeless or overwhelmed by, you know, like there's something stagnant, you know, like everything's a mess. I, now I get really curious, right? As I'm just like, well, what? Hmm. What's blocked? Like did some sticks pile up, you know, did some thoughts pile up in my mind that have created an old narrative that has just like wrapped itself up? Is there anything I can do small piece by small piece, which usually looks like, is there something I need to say to someone? Is there something I need to say to myself? Is there something I need to admit to myself? Is there something I'm longing for that I haven't acknowledged? Is there something I've deferred because I don't think I can have it? Like starting to get curious with myself, like what's creating that stagnation? And being willing to close things off to be like, actually, that's stagnant because it's actually complete. And I need to stop like drip drabbing into it and be like, let me actually fully close that pathway off and say no more to that so that I can really reclaim what can flow. Those are my big thing. It's like good generative boundaries where I'm like, oh, that's done. That's complete. And then getting really curious, like what's actually happening here? And when I get curious, then there's something to learn. And when there's something to learn, I'm like, oh, I'm in my life. I'm in my flow. <laughs> That's really beautiful. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Cool. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you about or anything you want to bring up? No. Thank you so much. This I really enjoyed this. This is such a beautiful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you so much. Yeah, with pleasure. And aside from this interview, like, of course, obviously, I've been yeah. following your work. Like, I'm so interested in the conference that you guys are going to be doing, yes. the Emergent Strategies Conference. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of proposing something for that. Is that for Allied Media? 
Yeah. Yeah. So you should definitely propose a session. It's I think March nineteenth or something. The session. Oh, it's so soon. Oh my is God, coming okay, up pretty yeah. soon. I mean, the deadline for proposals. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Are you um, going to be there too? I'm going to be there. I've already put in a couple of proposals for different sessions. I'll be hopefully leading like emergent strategy spells and practices and stuff like that. But yeah, the Allied Media Conference, I think it's, yeah, June 14th through the 17th in Detroit. It's here every year. And it's such a place, we've been playing so much with emergent strategy inside that cauldron. So, and this is the 20th anniversary year. So it's going to be a good one. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. I'm so curious. Actually, the basis of all of my work is somatic work. Oh, yay. That's awesome. Um, I studied it in Berlin for three years before I moved back to New York. What a small world. One of my friends, a dear, dear friend, and one of the people who I'm practicing this thousand percent honesty with is doing a Berlin somatics training right now today is like one of the teachers for it's I think it's generative somatics and it's uh Gazina and Hillary are teaching and yeah it's pretty awesome awesome well yeah thank you god thank you so much Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Radically Selfish Podcast. Big love to Adrian Marie Brown. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And shout out, of course, to my amazing producer, Nikki Thomas, and to Ducks for my theme music for this show. I usually end every podcast asking my listeners to do you, because if you don't, who will? And that's why this month I'm launching an amazing live coaching group called Do You for women who are ready to prioritize themselves and their desires to follow a dream that they have on the inside or even just to learn how to listen to that inner guidance and that inner wisdom that lives inside of you. So if you're curious, if you want to know more, if this sounds just like what you need to move forward into the next step of your journey, then shoot me an email or hit me up on DMs and I would love to tell you all about it. Can't wait to meet you and talk to you soon. Bye.